Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You would never have guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh and I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now the reason I'm telling you this is because that's what this podcast is, that's what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this podcast you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about James II who was a king who had a... A deep fascination, an obsession almost, with cannons and heavy artillery, and who was eventually killed by one of his own cannons. So James II, he was basically like every gun-owning American who has ever existed. Every every American who's ever bought a gun to inverted commas, protect their family, and then ended up getting shot by their own toddler. He was cut down in his prime when he forgot to socially distance himself from the cannon that he had just lit. It backfired and it killed him instantly. It was an unfortunate end for a king whose father had been murdered and whose son would also end up getting murdered. His grandson, his great-grandson, they'd both be cut down in their prime, and his great-great-granddaughter, well, she would spend most of her adult life in prison before eventually being murdered by a family member. Do you know what, like some people say the Stuarts, the Royal Stuarts, that they were cursed. Um, But the truth is, folks, they were just Scottish, you know. Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, alright? I'm not going to lie to you, it's mainly a lot of Tory bashing mixed in with some jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you've listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, can I suggest you go back to the first episode? Uh, They all go in chronological order. I don't really talk about anything topical or anything like that on the podcast. And each podcast will give you a decent bit of background into the one that follows it. So um, if this is the first time you're listening, I suggest you go back to the start. Right, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about King James II. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! The six-year-old James II was crowned King of Scotland on the 25th of March 1437 at Holyrood Abbey, and he would become known as James of the Fiery Face on account of a birthmark that covered the left side of his face, although the nickname it was uh, was doubly apt on account of James's fierce pride and fiery temper as well. It's a bit like how we could quite conceivably refer to Boris Johnson as Boris the Floppy waxy, two-faced, lying prick. Not just because he has a kind of floppy, kind of wax-like face, but also because, you know, he is a two-faced, lying prick as well. Now, the regicide of James I, it had left not so much an accession crisis in Scotland, but more a crisis of government. With a child monarch, it meant that there would be a minority government. And James's mother, Joan Beaufort, the Queen, or the Dowager Queen, she was determined to lead this minority government. James I, however, he had decimated the nobility in Scotland. His attacks on the nobles through his reign meant that at the time of James II's ascension, there was only three earls in Scotland, the Earl of Douglas, the Earl of Angus, and the Earl of Crawford, whereas in Scotland there there would usually be 10 or 11. Basically, there was no one for Joan to turn to for the necessary support. This left a power vacuum which made support hard to come by for Joan and also created fertile ground for dissension. The Scottish Parliament appointed Archibald, the Earl of Douglas, as a Lieutenant General 
of Scotland. But Archibald, he was merely a, a figurehead who was disinterested in politics. He was someone who wanted power but was completely disinterested in the actual work required to lead the country. I honestly cannot think of a single current day example, folks. And so into this power void stepped two complete unknowns from relative unknown minor noble families. Two complete unknowns stepping in to fill the void. It's a bit like when they replace a dragon on Dragon's Den. Now the men who stepped in to fill these positions or to kind of stepped into this power power void, they were opportunists and ruffians. There was Alexander Livingston, because, you know, Livingston is where a lot of Scotland's opportunists and ruffians come from, who was, uh, Alexander Livingston was a kind of a lesser ranking noble from the Lothians who played little role in the government and appeared seemingly from nowhere to become keeper of Stirling Castle. And another prominent man who stepped forward was Sir William Crichton, a lesser ranking noble Noble, sorry, but an emerging favourite in the court of James I, who had appointed him Master of the King's Household and Keeper of Edinburgh Castle, a prestigious role that required him to overcharge tourists. In the aftermath of the murder of her husband, Joan had escaped to Edinburgh Castle on the protection of William Crichton. But William Crichton, he effectively made James and Joan his prisoners. And in the summer of 1439, Joan, she managed to smuggle the young king out of Edinburgh Castle and she made for Stirling Castle in the protection of Alexander Livingston, whom she presumably thought would be more reasonable than Crichton. Now, in order to strengthen her position, Joan, she remarried. She married a supporter of the powerful Douglas family, Sir James Stuart. And Joan, she had uh, three sons with James Stuart. One would become the Earl of Athol, the other the Earl of Buchan and the latter the Bishop of Murray. Joan, she had essentially remarried in in an attempt to try and stay relevant. A bit like Cheryl Cole, I suppose. But Livingston apparently did not approve of the marriage because on their arrival at Stirling Castle, Livingston had the newlyweds and the young James II imprisoned. The General Council persuaded Livingston to release Joan and James four weeks later, but the Queen was forced to sign a declaration that said Livingston had acted out of great truth and loyalty, which, as far as defences for kidnappings go, is right up there with possession as nine-tenths of the law or making up some shite about not being able to sweat. Shortly after James II, he was uh, he was out riding near Stirling Castle while Joan was presumably at a nearby tapas restaurant with her pals, when the young king was snatched yet again by Crichton and taken back to Edinburgh Castle. James II, he was being swapped between Edinburgh and Stirling Castles like neighbours swapping cups of sugar. He'd at this point been kidnapped by Crichton and Livingston more frequently than Liam Neeson's daughter. And that was because in order to rule through the king, you needed possession of the king. It's why they were both locking James up so they could rule through him. They were acting a bit like... Britney Spears' dad, I suppose. While Crichton and Livingston were fine out over the possession of the king, a third more powerful family, the Douglases, were in a position to blow Crichton and Livingston out of the water and become by far the most powerful family in the kingdom. In 1439, the disinterested Archibald Douglas, the Lieutenant General of Scotland, he died of plague. Of plague, sorry. His young, dashing, charismatic 15-year-old son, William, His minority was coming to an end. Now, this meant that he would soon be too old for Prince Andrew, but old enough to inherit the powerful Douglas earldom, making him the most powerful man in Scotland with 5,000 knights and 5,000 spearmen at his call. 
Now, in the 15th century, there were two branches of the Douglas family. The Black Douglases, named so on account of their dark complexion, and the Red Douglases, named so on account of their red hair. Both branches of the Douglas family were descended from the first Earl of Douglas, the loyal lieutenant and right-hand man of Robert Bruce, the great James Douglas. The Black Douglases were descended from one of his illegitimate sons, and the Red Douglases were descended from an illegitimate son of the second Earl of Douglas, the hero who had uh, died in the famous chivalrous 1388 Battle of Otterburn. Now, it will come as no surprise that the royal family did not like the Black Douglases at all. When a Red Douglas, in fact, married a Black Douglas, the uh, the couple were forced to flee the country and give up their royal lifestyles. But it was the Black Douglases who were the most powerful family at this point in the 15th century. And the 10-year-old James II, he hero-worshipped the 15-year-old William Douglas. But for Crichton and Livingston, the looming threat that William Douglas posed was one that had to be dealt with. And so they put their differences aside to deal with the threat of the Douglases. And what followed is one of the most infamous events in Scottish history. The events of the Black Dinner, which took place at Edinburgh Castle on the 24th of November, 1440. Working together for a change, Crichton and Livingston, they put their differences aside and invited William and his younger brother David to dine with the King at the Great Hall in Edinburgh Castle. And they were received with every mark of friendship, promised safe passage and a night of pleasant dining with the young King James II. But what William David should have known is that when two evil parties come together and make a promise, they are never likely to keep it. The Better Together campaign taught us that. And after a pleasant dinner, William Douglas, he was presented with the head of a black bull, a traditional sign of doom, um, which is presumably why Aberdeen Football Club have a black bull as their club mascot, because nothing says perpetual doom like that football team. The brothers, they were seized, given a mock trial for treason and taken to the courtyard where an execution block had already been set up. It was a bit like if uh, a member of ISIS was on come dine with me, you know, like a beheading would likely be there after dinner entertainment as well. Now, William, he pleaded for his brother to be killed first so that he wouldn't have to witness his beheading, while a 10-year-old James II watched on helplessly as his hero was beheaded in front of him. Now, the events of the Black Dinner are said to have inspired the uh, the Red Wedding episode in Game of Thrones, which is where the hosts kill all of their guests, uh, presumably to avoid having to pay for their meals, which, as someone who is currently organising a wedding, really doesn't sound like that bad an idea, I can tell you. The Black Dinner it basically saw the hosts totally fuck over the people they invited despite offering them safe passage. Now, to put it in a 21st century context for you, William Douglas and his brother, they were the Windrush generation and Livingston and Crichton, they were the Theresa May and her Tory cronies destined to totally fuck them over. And there's a well-known Scottish rhyme which uh, can commemorates the events of the Black Dinner. And it goes a little bit like this, it goes... Edinburgh Castle, town and tower, God grant thou sink for sin, and that even for the black dinner, Earl Douglas gat therein. The man who succeeded William Douglas was the boy's great uncle, James Douglas of Balvenie and Abercorn, who was, he was known as James the Gross, and he presumably played a part in the Douglas boy's murder, or at least knew of them, because he did nothing to avenge their deaths. James Douglas, he died in 1443, and he was succeeded by his son, William Douglas, who was a famous tournament champion. At a tournament in 1448, 1448 being the last tournament that Scotland actually qualified for, 
There was three Burgundian champions who were matched against three Scottish knights, one of whom was William Douglas. And each combatant, they were allowed a lance, shield, daggers, an axe and a sword. And the men were to fight until the death or until one of them yielded or the king called a halt to proceedings. Douglas, he was matched against the great Burgundian knight Jacques de la Lane. Uh, he was kind of like the Bruce Lee of knights at the time. And William Douglas, he managed to unhorse him and remove all of his weapons before the young King James II dropped his baton to single an end to the contest. Basically, William Douglas, he was hot shit, and he managed to exploit the inherent weaknesses of the Crichton and Livingston coalition, coalition sorry, joining the Livingstons on attack against the Crichtons, removing Quilly, William Crichton from office and forcing him to give up Edinburgh Castle. William Douglas then married Margaret, the fair maid of Galloway, the sister of the William Douglas killed in the Black Dinner, and the marriage added Galloway to Douglas domains, meaning William Douglas essentially controlled all of southern Scotland. William's Douglas brothers, they also wielded significant power in the north, and his sisters, they married the, the High Constable of Scotland and the heads of the houses of Fleming and Wallace, and William Douglas also formed an alliance with the Earl of Crawford, the most powerful magnate north of the fourth, meaning that the Black Douglases wielded power throughout the entire kingdom for the rest of James II's minority, and they had possession of the king after the breakdown of the coalition between Crichton and Livingston and before James II began his personal rule. James II's mother, Joan Buford, she died in July 1445 and she was buried next to her first husband, James I, in Perth. Her husband at the time, James Stewart, he fled to England fearing a Douglas backlash. Uh, the Douglases they had completely outmaneuvered Joan throughout the king's minority. And the General Council, they declared the King's minority over in October 1444 at the age of 14. But it wasn't until James's marriage at the age of 18 in 1449 that he took full control of his kingdom. And since James I's daughter unhappily married Dauphin of France and his other daughters married into the aristocracy in Brittany and Austria, Scotland's standing on the European stage at the time of James beginning his personal rule it had never been higher. And it wouldn't be as high until 1967 when Celtic won the European Cup, which is something, by the way, that their supporters hardly ever mention. And it allowed James II to marry the niece of the immensely wealthy, influential and powerful Duke of Burgundy, Philippe the Good. James married Philippe the Good's niece, Marie de Gueldres, in a lavish ceremony at Holyrood on the 3rd of July, 1449. It was a prestigious royal match for a Stuart king that opened up lucrative new trading routes to the continent for Scottish merchants. And as a wedding gift, the Duke of Burgundy gave to James the largest, most advanced siege gun of the time, Mons Meg, which was manufactured in Mons, which is in uh, modern-day Belgium. The huge cannon, it could fire a cannonball of iron the size of a human head over three miles. It was a massive, impractical cannon, which is still pride of place in Edinburgh Castle to this day. Or if you're American, you can probably just nip down to Walmart and pick one up, you know? Mons Meg remains the biggest weapon Edinburgh Castle has ever seen, or at least it was until, you know, Robbie Williams played there a couple of summers ago. The cannon, it was used in sieges until the 16th century and was then fired ceremoniously on special occasions from Edinburgh Castle thereafter. And after the failed Jacobite rebellions of the 18th century, it was removed from Edinburgh Castle and taken to the Tower of London before Sir Walter Scott successfully campaigned for its return to Scotland in 1829. The English given it back presumably because they knew if we ever tried to use it against them, we would 
inevitably miss the target anyway. After the marriage to Marie de Gueldres, James was keen to demonstrate his personal rule had begun in earnest, and his first act as king was to launch an attack on the Livingston family, bringing an abrupt end to their rise to power during his minority. In January 1450, Livingston lands were forfeited and two of the Livingston family executed for apparent financial misdemeanours. This was back in the days when financial misdemeanours were punished by governments instead of just being bailed out and rewarded. Hard to imagine, I know. James then turned his attention to the Douglases, whose formidable strength would be enough to make any monarch apprehensive. In 1450, William Douglas, he was uh, attending a papal jubilee in Rome, and while he was there, he was showing off his ostentatious wealth like an offshore oil worker returned home for the weekend. So while Walter Douglas was embarrassed, sorry, while William Douglas was embarrassing himself on the continent like a travelling ranger supporter, James had two of the Douglas castles seized, and on his return to Scotland, William Douglas made a formal submission to James II in June 1451, and an uneasy truce then ensued. William Douglas was aware of the king's hostility and how it could potentially leave him vulnerable. And so in an attempt to further strengthen his position, he entered into an alliance with John MacDonald, Earl of Ross and the Lord of the Isles, as well as Alexander the Earl of Crawford. Now this pact, it was interpreted by James II as an act of potential rebellion and the training of arms against him. And so on the 22nd of February 1452, James he invited William Douglas to Stirling Castle for discussions, promising him safe passage. And at the meeting, James, he asked William Douglas to break this alliance with Ross and Crawford. And when Douglas said that he couldn't and he wouldn't, James went into a blind rage and, shout and shouted, Since you will not, I shall. And he stabbed him in the chest and neck before his courtiers attacked William Douglas repeatedly, piling in on the guy like they had discovered some un-PC tweets from him dating back to 2012. Douglas, he was stabbed 26 times in total and smashed over the head with a poleaxe. But despite this brazen murder and unchivalrous breaking of safe passage, Parliament dutifully exonerated James II after a rambling hour-and-a-half-long press conference. It was explained that despite obviously breaking the rules with no disregard for human life, James's actions were justifiable because he needed to arrange childcare. Parliament agreed that William Douglas was conspiring against the Crown and that the murder had been done in hot blood, so wasn't really murder at all. Basically, it's the uh, American police being caught shooting innocent man defence, you know? In retaliation for the murder, the new Earl of Douglas, James, William's brother, rode into Stirling with 600 men and he rode into town with the safe conduct promise nailed to a board which was dragged through the streets of Stirling in the back of an old broken down horse before his men then plundered and burned the town and Douglas renounced his homage to James II and offered it to England instead. James's response was a vicious foray into Douglas lands in the summer of 1452. There was a brief period of peace between the Douglases and the Crown before James Douglas was eventually beaten into submission. Douglas swore fealty to James II, and as a reward, he was allowed, after papal dispensation, to marry his brother's widow, Margaret, the fair maid of Galloway. Now, it may have seemed generous terms, but once again, it turned out James was playing a, a rouse, buying time to bribe and threaten Douglas's allies behind his back. And when James Douglas was suitably isolated, James II launched yet another attack on Douglas lands in 1455, and this time it would drive the Douglases out of Scotland altogether. 
James managed to put down James Douglas's brothers in the north. The Earl of Murray was killed, the Earl of Ormond was captured and executed, and the Lord of Balvini driven into exile. Then, using his artillery power, James II took two Douglas castles and James Douglas fled to England, where he lived out the remainder of his days on a pension from the English crown. 1455 would prove to be the high point of James II's reign. On his 25th birthday on the 16th of October 1455, Parliament announced that he had attained his perfect majority and he was freed from any restrictions from his minority. The Black Douglases essentially had been smashed and in their place James rewarded the loyal Red Douglases, promoting the head of the Red Douglases, George, the Earl of Anglis. He strengthened the links between the Crown and the Church and the nobles whom James I had had such a fractured relationship with. And in 1455, Marie also gave birth to a second son after the birth of their first son, James, in 1451, who would go on to become the future James III. Parliament, they wanted to provide the king with a stable income, and so they insisted that James II get himself a part-time job in Lidl. And as well as that, they gave to James II the acquired lands from the Black Douglases. This provided the crown with stable revenue and it stopped future tax rises after the extreme taxes by James II's predecessor, James I. And so it was that three of Scotland's most iconic castles became official royal residents of the crown, Edinburgh, Stirling and Dumbarton castles. And new earldoms, they were created in Argyle, Morton, Rothes and the Earl Mariscal, as well as the new position Lord of Parliament, which cost James II nothing in terms of land, but ensured that there was a new royalist party within the parliament. The creation of these earldoms saw one of Scotland's future most powerful families, the Campbells, step onto the scene in Argyll. And James II, with his Queen Marie de Gueldres, was, was trying to build a cult of monarchy, built on chivalry, a renaissance court, ecclesiastical hierarchy. This cult of royalty, it still exists in Scotland. And by that, what I mean is most people here think that the royals are a bunch of useless cults. And James II, he greatly added to the crown's power, thanks in part to his collection of heavy cannon and artillery. James used cannons more effectively than an 11-year-old playing Fortnite and allowed him to become master of his baron's castles. And under James II's rule, the Scottish crown also enjoyed its finest prestige in Europe with James married to Marie de Gueldres of the Burgundy family and Stuarts in place throughout the powerful royal courts in Austria and Brittany. If 1455 was the highlight of James II's reign, it was also a key year in England as it marked the beginning of the complicated and disjointed English Civil War, the War of the Roses, which I think always sounds like a, a county cricket match, you know. And like a cricket match, it was long, drawn out, nobody knew what the fuck was going on most of the time, and it would just kind of stop and start randomly for rain or scones or whatever. Now, the War of the Roses, it would have a profound effect on Scotland over the next 32 years and would impact the reigns of James II through to James IV. It was fought between two English royal houses, the House of Lancaster and the House of York, kind of like an aggressive Harry Potter. The rival claims on the English throne went back to the rule of Edward III. The Yorkists, they had a claim to the throne through Edward's fourth son, Edmund Langley, the Duke of York, and the Lancastrians were descended from Edward's third son, John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. The Lancastrians, they had seized power from Richard II in 1399, and three Lancastrian kings would follow, Henry IV, Henry V, and Henry VI, who became king only nine months old in 1422. 
During Henry VI's minority, England was ruled by his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. In 1445, Henry VI married Margaret of Anjou, and in 1447, the Duke of Gloucester was executed. And in the fallout that followed Gloucester's execution, the Yorkists built up their power base and appointed Richard, Duke of York, as protector of England in 1454. Now, Henry VI, he was prone to bouts of insanity and suffered from mental health problems, leaving him completely incapable of making decisions, and he was controlled by others. Hard to imagine in 2020, I know. Henry VI was powerless to stop the Yorkist power, power grab when it came. The first Battle of the Roses occurred in St Albans in May 1455. The Lancastrians were defeated and Henry VI was imprisoned by the Yorkists. The Yorkists then won another key battle in 1460 at Northampton and Henry VI was once again taken prisoner. And after a series of Lancastrian defeats, Henry VI was formally deposed and the 20-year-old Duke of York, Edward, ruled as Edward IV. Henry VI, he was murdered while uh, while prisoner in the Tower of London in 1471 and Edward IV, he ruled as king from 1461 to 1470 and then from 1471 to his death in 1483. When Edward IV died, his young sons Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, were killed in the Tower of London in the famous Princes in the Tower episode, which was kind of like the English Black Dinner. The princes, they were being held in the Tower of London by their uncle Richard, who had been made Lord Protector after the death of Edward IV. And they were being kept there for their supposed protection, but they mysteriously disappeared never to be seen again. It's thought that Richard had had the princes murdered so that he could become king, King Richard III. It's all a bit of a mystery. Um, but what is definitely certain is that even in the 15th century, they were predatory uncles in the English royal family. Richard III was eventually defeated by the future Henry VII at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, marking the end of the War of the Roses, the defeat of the Yorkists, and the beginning of the Lancastrian House of Tudor, with Henry VII, the first of the Tudor kings. James II saw the War of the Roses in England as an opportunity to finally get back the English-held castles in Scotland at Berwick and at Roxburgh. As England fought a civil war and was losing its holdings in France, Scotland was largely left alone. England didn't care about Scotland, but still somehow managed to hold on to two MPs, eh, sorry, castles in the borders. The English expected an attack on Berwick Castle and so they concentrated their defences there while James made for Roxburgh instead and after levelling the town he focused his attention on Roxburgh Castle firing at the castle from across the River Tweed. On Sunday the 3rd of August 1460 one of James's largest cannons, the Lion, broke its casing as it went off and James he had totally forgotten to socially distance himself from the cannon when it went off and he was killed by a flying chunk of iron although he probably would have survived if he had been wearing his mask. Local tradition says that the cannon was fired to announce the arrival of the Queen at the siege. Now the spot of James II's death is marked by a holly tree in the grounds of Fleur's Castle on the River Tweed, a palatial mansion located at the spot from where James II fired at Roxburgh Castle on the other side of the Tweed. The castle was captured a few days after the death of the king by the Queen Marie de Gueldres and then systematically demolished. And James II's death, it was an unfortunate and sudden end. James, he was only 29 years old when he died. And with James II now dead, Scotland was left once again with a child monarch, James's nine-year-old son, James the Duke of Rothsey, who would become James III. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Uh, if this is the first episode of the Motorbank History Scotland podcast that you've listened to, then check out some of the other ones. It's the same thing. Do you know what I mean? If you like this one, you'll like the rest as well. Uh, uh, please do all the things that people ask you to do at the end of podcast. Give the podcast a rate, give it a like, give it a follow, tell your pals. Uh, give me a wee follow on social media as well, at Montebank Tours. You can get me on Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you would like to contribute to the Montebank History of Scotland series, you can go on to buy me a coffee and you can leave me the equivalent of a price of coffee. If you've listened to a few episodes and you'd like to contribute, anything's appreciated. Or if you prefer, you can actually become a patron of the podcast. Go on to patreon.com and you can leave me basically the equivalent of a, a price of a cup of coffee every single month. And what I try to do is each week, I try to raise enough money through those accounts to um, to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. And I try and match what I've been talking about on the podcast with a, a malt whiskey from Scotland. So today's podcast, James II, I am going to match with Lagavulin, uh, which is an Eilie whiskey, a very famous Eilie whiskey. And the reason I'm matching Lagavulin with James II is because James II, he was known as James of the Fiery Face. Um, and so if you're going to match a whiskey with a king called James the Fiery Face, it needs to be full-bodied, it needs to be smoky, fiery, peated, memorable. Um, and so that's why I've decided to match Lagavulin with James the Second. So if you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of Lagavulin, all you need to do is uh, leave me a wee bit of money on Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon, leave a comment, uh, send me a DM on social media or an email, and I basically choose someone at random. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, folks. Please give it a wee rate and a like. Uh, give me a wee follow on social media at Montebank Tours. And uh, I hope to see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.